listening to Breakthrough News. It's 5 p.m. You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on the Punch-Out! 1st of February 2022. It's Black History Month here in the United States, so happy Black History Month to everybody out there listening. We are happy to be back with you here on the show and got plenty for you here on the show, as we always do. We're going to be talking about Haiti's ongoing struggle for stability, a little bit about some recent donors to former President Donald Trump's super PAC. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we want to start with some issues about neocolonialism in West Africa. Mali, Guinea, and Burkina Faso have all recently had military coups, which rode to power on the back of mass anger against French neocolonialism in West Africa, and more broadly, the relationship between French and Western policies and the security and economic challenges facing the various populations of these three nations. Mali has been hit with significant sanctions, while Guinea and Burkina Faso have received more rhetorical opposition from countries in the region and internationally. As the situation develops, there is a lot that is unknown. But based on what we do know, to what degree do the new governments seem to represent real change? And how much do they seem to represent perhaps just a rearranging of unequal realities? Overall, while again, we can only say so much, what's clear is that what's at stake is not quote-unquote democracy, but the broader geostrategic relations between West Africa and the West in the context of a growing so-called multipolarity on the world stage. Mali has become the main flashpoint in the region, and the coup last May has evoked the strongest response from the various other countries in the region. The economic community of West African states has leveled significant sanctions on Mali, essentially cutting off all economic intercourse, flights, and access to the Central Bank of West Africa and other reserves that Mali holds in, other con- in central banks in other countries. And only Guinea has kept open the border and is showing solidarity with Mali. The European Union is also preparing to level its own sanctions quite soon, and the U.S. is backing the ECOWAS. EU moves on this as well. Yesterday, France's ambassador to Mali was asked to leave the country in 72 hours, and France announced this morning that it is reviewing whether to withdraw its entire military presence, which has been drawn down by half. Denmark was also asked to remove its 100 or so troops participating in the French-led military mission and says it's withdrawing. Germany, who's also there, hasn't been asked to leave, but they put out a proactive statement saying they are refusing to leave. So for now, they're there. As many have pointed out, the reaction to Mali is clearly hypocritical. For instance, President of Côte d'Ivoire, Lassane Ouattara, rode to power on the backs of his own coup, which had the support of the French military. And France and the West were totally unconcerned when the military took over in Chad last year. It seems that the real immediate issue in Mali is that the Mali coup government invited Russia to provide military help in the country late last year, which kicked off a major row with Western nations, which ultimately resulted in the ECOWAS sanctions. Those two things seem almost assuredly connected. 
However, the sharp differences between Mali and the West do raise some questions about what is underlying this. Without any doubt, the coup government is getting strong support from the Malian street, which has been rising in mass anger specifically at France and the neo-colonial ties between the two countries. And people have come out in their hundreds of thousands to support the coup government's decision to delay elections. On the same token, however, the coup government is putting Umar Mariko, a significant leader of the left and the mass movement against neocolonialism, on trial for criticizing the coup government's prime minister. And that prime minister, by the way, has his political roots in Mali's pro-Western Cold War government in power from 1968 to the early 1990s after they ousted Modibo Keita, who had been challenging France as the leader of Mali in the early and mid-60s. Also notable is that despite all the hatred, the Malian foreign minister was also recently at the G5 Sahel security meeting in Brussels and met with the EU foreign minister and the foreign minister of Belgium. The G5 is the main coordinator for Western military intervention in West Africa, so there are open questions on whether Mali's new government is looking simply for power or for changing power relations, which would mean redefining the economic relationships with the West and sharing the nation's mineral wealth. But nonetheless, clearly their willingness to make even a tiny alliance with Russia has raised fears of Western nations that the coup in Mali could, in fact, lead to deeper changes in the region. In Burkina Faso, there are similar indications of what the real orientation of the coup government may be. And first and foremost, the government has temporarily paused the trial of the murderers of revolutionary leader Thomas Sankara. This has led to all sorts of rumors that Blaise Compare, who led the coup that murdered Sankara in the 80s and is very, very close to France and an advocate of their neo-colonial control over West Africa, may have orchestrated the coup last week in Burkina in order to put a stop to accountability for elites in the country who are deeply implicated in the murder of Sankara. ECOWAS seems to be taking a much softer line with Burkina Faso as well. The same with Western nations who are mainly offering rhetorical critique. In Guinea, the government has communicated the most in terms of its future direction of the three countries. The transitional period that it has put in place to prepare for elections is of unknown length, but it has formed a relatively broad transitional council with many of the main quote-unquote civil society groups in the country backing it. The prime minister of Guinea told Al Jazeera that the transitional period is focused on fighting corruption and establishing, in his words, quote, a country that protects its own resources, mobilizes them and uses them for the people, end quote. In the same interview, the Ghanaian prime minister also critiqued the sanctions against Mali and noted that not only would they keep the borders open, but that the border between the two nations was a colonial creation. Which is the crux of the point. The conflicts across the Sahel are being driven by deep economic inequities, lack of public services, climate change, and the ability to transcend colonial relationships as well. The depth of these challenges is reflected in the fact aid agencies are warning of a 50% increase in hunger in Mali and Burkina Faso, as well as Niger, in coming months. Any real change would have to address these broader issues. And so far, we have not seen much in that direction, only tentative steps across all three countries. And we've also seen some steps that are concerning in the other direction, just a rearranged situation where elites continue to rule amongst poverty for the many. So it's yet to be seen what the outcomes will be. But what is clear is that the mass anger and unrest against neocolonialism in West Africa is driving the political agenda in serious ways across the region that could have much bigger implications for the African continent and geopolitics more broadly. On Monday, former U.S. President Donald Trump's main super PAC, Make America Great Again, 
filed its most recent fundraising information for the last three months of 2021. As you might expect, the $4.3 million haul was, quote, fueled mostly by donations of more than $25,000, according to the campaign finance watchdog Open Secrets. The disclosures are just one more reflection of how politics is heavily controlled by a very small number of people. Roughly 500 people have accounted for 91% of all known super PAC donations so far in the 2022 cycle. The top 100 have accounted for 64%. Two-thirds of all max donations to politicians come from the wealthiest 10% of zip codes. So the money that funds all aspects of the political machine is coming from a tiny sliver, less than 1%, far less of the population of the country. So of the small number of super rich people giving to Trump, who are some of them? Well, many are unsurprising big-time right-wing donors like Diane Hendricks, a Wisconsin billionaire who gave $250,000, for instance. There's also Jose Fanjul of the multi-billion dollar sugar dynasty who also kicked in a quarter of a million bucks. In addition, there's Donna Hearn, a Vegas businessman who owns a huge equipment rental company and a casino and also donated $250,000 to the Trump team. David Mays Middleton II president of an oil company and member of the Texas House of Representatives, also kicked in a quarter mil. Trump took in two $500,000 donations from corporations that are clearly just temporary setups being used to hide some large donors who don't want to be directly known. One thing that can be said is that one of those corporations listed as their address, a bank in Texas whose CEO has donated heavily to Ted Cruz in past years. All in all, this is just another example that the fuel that fires the U.S. political system is being pumped from the pockets of just a tiny handful of ultra-rich people. Next Monday, February 7th, is supposed to mark a transition of power in Haiti. The now-assassinated former President Jovenel Moïse had set the date as the end of his term, which he had illegally extended for a year in 2021. However, current Prime Minister Ariel Henry, placed at the head of the government by a clique of elites organized by the United States, is refusing to vacate the office, which could lead to a renewed cycle of mass struggle in the country. Henri is vying with a parallel initiative called the Montana Accord for Legitimacy. The Accord brought together 418 civil society organizations, 105 popular movements, 85 political parties and groups, and 313 personalities, and issued its own document to create a two-year transition process to establish stability in the country and allegedly strengthen state institutions to lay the groundwork for elections. The Accord elected its own leaders on Sunday, declaring economist and former governor of the Bank of the Republic of Haiti, Fritz Alfonjon, as the Caribbean country's new interim president, and former Senator Stephen Benoit as the prime minister. The Accord elections, however, took a hit in their legitimacy when Fanmi Lavalas, a former ruling party with a pro-poor reputation, withdrew from the coalition just before the vote. Nevertheless, the Accord is saying that the president and prime minister that they have elected will be legitimate starting on February 7th. In addition, there are some armed actors, the so-called gangs, that are also setting themselves up as power centers and who have called on international forces to back them for leadership and who have murky ties to various political factions themselves. One other interesting development is that very recently, former Senator Moy Jean-Charles, who has a long reputation as a radical and is known for solidarity with Bolivari in Venezuela, was detained for eight hours in Miami while returning to Haiti from Nigeria. He told the newspaper Haiti Liberté that a significant number of the questions that he was asked while detained circled around his relations with Maduro. Jean-Charles had joined Henri's government, which makes you believe the U.S. is doing some vetting on its puppet government's various allies. Ariel Henry 
current appointed prime minister has the official power. The accord has some social currency and there are various forces with armed power. And on February 7th, there will be renewed conversations about the illegitimacy of the current government. It seems likely this could lead to a new round of massive protest as various opposition forces try to highlight pressure and even force out Henri. Socialist forces from several currents are strengthening their organizations in various ways in an effort to push forward mass struggle and propose a radical break from Haiti's neo-colonial reality. As we've mentioned before, strike activity has been on the uptick in Haiti. And just last week, the Haitian Popular Press Agency reported that hundreds of workers at Caracol Industrial Park carried out three days of demonstrations and sit-ins to demand higher wages. Caracol is one of the huge sweatshop labor parks formed with support from the U.S. government and former President Bill Clinton in the wake of the 2010 earthquake. Workers detailed that low wages left them in poverty and also pointed out how serious lung disease is common as a result of chemical exposure and lack of protective equipment. They further protested how state agencies have left all of these regulations on all of these health and safety issues totally unenforced. Haiti's social and security situation continues to deteriorate in the context of the political vacuum that exists. Clearly, various sectors of the elite are vying for power. The international community, which keeps tight rein on the elite, is also trying to secure the lucrative neo-colonial setup in Haiti, and the masses continue to seethe and express their anger at the whole state of affairs. Haiti is clearly at a crossroads in its history, and the coming months may decide quite a bit about the coming decades. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York, East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles, Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. 